This is the Bayes Factor, a podcast about the people behind Bayesian statistics and other hot methodological issues in psychological research. In this eighth episode, Alex interviews Rolf Zwan and Rich Lucas during the 2017 SIPS meeting. Rolf Zwan is Professor of Biological and Cognitive Psychology at the Institute of Psychology of Erasmus University, Rotterdam. Rich Lucas is Professor of Psychology at Michigan State University. They discuss the importance of replication for psychological research, how they incorporate ideas from the psychology reform movement in their own research, and the various perceptions people have of psychology's reformers. Okay, we are here at SIPS 2017. I'm Alex Etz. I'm joined with Rich Lucas. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, and Rolf Zwan. Thanks for having me. Of course. So uh, in this episode, I think we're going to try to cover a range of topics, including the SIPS meeting itself, Mm -hmm. the open science uh, movement, really, um, replication studies, your roles as editors and your experiences Mm -hmm. and uh, we'll see what we get to. Sounds um, good. Yep. And then, okay, so maybe my first question is, how did we get together at SIPS last year? We were all here. Mm-hmm. You sort of picking a, a hackathon session to go to. Uh, I think, Rich, mm-hmm. you were the moderator for mm-hmm. this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, could you tell us what the goal of this was? Sure. I mean, I think the one of the interesting things about SIPS is the extent to which it is action-focused. So you know, uh, the plan is to come up with some ideas uh, about things that actually need some action, some problems the field faces or things that we know we can do to improve the field and try to limit certain topics and focus on those topics and try to come up with an actionable plan. Uh, So last year, and there are many of these that I think are interesting and I think that's one of the big challenges Mm -hmm. is figuring out which of these that you want to do. But last year we did focus on replication and making replications more mainstream. Um, I think my role at that point was really just to kind of get the conversation going and then seeing what people had in mind in terms of the way that we could get other people to um, think more about replications, uh, try to do more replications, think how those replications should be done, uh, how we can get journals to accept uh, the importance of replication. And, right. um, and it started a great discussion that I think has led to a number of really nice outcomes now when we look back on it a year mm-hmm. later. Right. One of those outcomes is that a group of us got together and we wrote a paper. Mm-hmm. Um, that we, we wrote uh, certain arguments that we encounter against replications in our yeah. responses. Um, Rolf, do you remember how we started this paper? Because I yeah. wasn't initially involved necessarily. Yeah, I, I, guess. Gu- I guess the group that uh, Rich led uh, basically fell apart into two groups, right? So one was uh, the group that was going to write a, a paper, and the other group started Study Swap, which I think is a great mm-hmm. initiative. Mm-hmm. And so Rich, I, and Brand Donnellan were uh, you know working on this uh, review paper, kind of uh, outlining it, and then uh, at some point, uh, you know, we decided we need somebody who knows something about <laughs> <laughs> methodology <laughs> on board, and, and, and you seem like a perfect uh, choice for that. I al- already met you, I think, at a meeting in Holland. The, the I yeah. think it was before SIPS, yeah. yeah. And uh, and uh, and so yeah, th- then we started uh, working on this paper, and the initial idea was lo- well, let's. Uh, provide or the the strongest case against replication what are the strongest arguments and can we counter them that's how we started off mm-hmm. and uh, seemed like we were able <laughs> we thought <laughs> to <laughs> counter them <laughs> 
right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. It came out nicely. Yeah. 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 Could you give an example of one of the arguments against replication that you thought, uh, you know, maybe on its face seems like a very strong argument, but we sort of. Um, well, uh, I mean, th- the most common one is the, uh, you know, the hidden moderator, which I think is a, a very weak argument because it's only invoked, you know, when there is a non-replication. Um, and that was, I think, fairly easy mm-hmm. to counter. Um, but I felt that a lot of uh, the arguments wa- were like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't think of uh, one that I found particularly strong. Yeah. I mean, I um, think one yeah. that comes up a lot that I think is yeah. worth taking seriously mm-hmm. is that, you know, uh, the field is one where we're often rewarded for new advances yeah. and for making new contributions and coming up with new ideas. And I think that there is a real struggle for, you know, especially early career researchers who want to uh, make their name as someone who makes this important new advance. And mm-hmm. so if you spend your time on replications, then that's going to take up resources that you have right. uh, to do other things. And so I think that, um, you know, some of the some of the issues that we discussed in the yeah. paper have to do with uh, the, the resources that it takes to do replications, um, uh, the value of replications, the mm-hmm. value of replications when you could be spending your time on new discoveries. Right. And so really focusing on things, that at the very least, that I think um, people who um, take seriously the idea that maybe replication is important, mm-hmm. but here are all the obstacles yeah. uh, to uh, doing replications and, and mm-hmm. trying to think about ways we could address those, right. things that we could do to help those people along, things that we could do in terms of, um, you know, maybe making uh, journals and, and uh, you know, uh, tenure review committees appreciate these types of contributions more. Right, yeah, because yeah. there is a sense that you get that, you know, when someone's work is replicated, they feel like, you know, someone's out to get you, mm-hmm. Yeah. right? And if you're an early career person, you don't want to make enemies right. against, mm-hmm. you right. know, s- such and such big shot at yeah. the mm-hmm. universities, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. but, but really you, you know, we're replicating things all the time, right. but yeah. you know, maybe if it's just becomes the norm, right? Mm-hmm. That was our idea of mainstream. Right. Right. It, right. Yeah. We didn't want to use the phrase "make replication great again," <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but but it's basically, you know, what we uh, we're trying to do. And and if you look at uh, cognitive psychology, um, typically, you know, we run an experiment and. Uh, we get a certain finding and then it turns out there's an alternative explanation Mm -hmm. for it which either we have discovered ourselves or a reviewer will and then we need to run another experiment which is basically a replication of the first one with an additional condition and so um, I think uh, that's also people started working you know in in other uh, types of research where they basically said, okay, I'm going to take this finding and I'm going to build on it. Mm-hmm. Right. You start out thinking, uh, I'm going to build on it, but let me first replicate it. And what you see then is that you sometimes get stranded, you know, right at the first step. You can't right. replicate it. And h- how mm-hmm. do you continue then? And I think, didn't you mention, Rich, that did you, uh, or was it Brent, I don't know, uh, who started off thinking, okay, this is an effect mm-hmm. uh, that I believe in, yes. and then you became a skeptic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have, mm-hmm. yeah, so mm-hmm. some of the most recent studies that we failed to replicate, yeah. we we did yeah. we did them initially within yeah. a design that was a direct replication plus an extension. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had actually, yeah, I mean, I, I think that we expected the effect to replicate. Mm-hmm. We thought that perhaps there was a chance that it wouldn't, given our uh, understanding of how these things work. And so um, we were prepared to have to do additional studies that mm-hmm. were just going back to the drawing board and say, okay, can we just replicate mm-hmm. it? But our initial attempts were, let's assume this is going to work and yep. let's build in an extension that we could then use to answer additional questions. 
then we had trouble replicating yep. that basic effect and we went back to see uh, whether we could get it uh, with larger samples, doing it over slightly, uh, slightly different designs. Right, because it seems like most of the time you're just, you're interested in this effect, you run a right. replication, oh shoot. Mm -hmm. Yes, we yeah. didn't get it right. Yeah. I don't know how many people are out there just trying to replicate things, and they're like, mm -hmm. "I think this is BS. <laughs> I'm gonna go show it." Right? <laughs> I mean, but but then, do you think there's something, anything wrong with that attitude? I mean, in science, you should yeah. be open to someone trying to show that right. you're wrong. I, right? I know people who are doing that. Uh, not that many. Mm -hmm. um, I think for an early career researcher, I don't know if that, that's a particularly good move because you also need to sort of develop a coherent research program. Mm -hmm. And if you only pick findings that you don't uh, believe and try to replicate them, then you get sort of a patchy uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, vita. Uh, so, but if it sort of flows organically from uh, your own research interest, then, then I think it makes perfect sense. And uh, I think that's yeah. the largest percentage of people are just doing that they're, they're not out to get anybody and there's two there's no. two sides no. of this question mm. too or two parts of this question mm. one is whether it's a good career move and i absolutely yeah. agree that, yeah. th that it's not a good career move to spend yeah. your time just replicating things that you don't think are gonna are, are gonna yeah. work out um and i don't think that there are very many people that are doing that right. the flip side of that question though is whether we should be building our studies designing our studies uh reporting our studies in such a way that they survive uh, yeah. a, a, an, a, an attack by your yeah. strongest critic right. and yeah. i think think that we should be making our studies, um, uh, we should design our studies and, and report on them in a way that, it that we could take someone, we could give our design and give our methods, and we might have checks built in to make sure that our critic is doing them in a competent mm -hmm. way, and we want to be able to check on that as they're going along, but the analysis, the, design, the, the running of the study should be able to survive. Um, someone who was out to get you, uh, right. as long yeah. as they were honest, yeah. if they were uh, honestly doing this study but out to get you, our study should survive if it was a strong effect. Yeah. Um, you know, again, I don't see that many people that are approaching it that way, but uh, my ideal uh, science would be one that, that our studies would be able to survive that. And, right. and then how do you view uh, studies that were done before 2012 and say studies that are done or that were done last year, should we have different? So in other words, should you uh, expect more from a study that was done two years ago? Should it be more replicable or... Uh uh, or do you think? Uh, yeah, I think that's. Yeah. A I think yeah. it's a really interesting question. Yeah. I think that so many of the things that yeah. we're doing right now, yeah. I think, should move us in that yeah. direction. Whether it's the idea that someone is going to replicate my study, or that we now know much more about how to use mm. OSF to preserve uh, mm -hmm. the materials and the code and the data in such a way that it will make it more replicable mm, right. and more yeah. likely to survive. Um, so I think that uh, I'm hoping mm. that things would be more replicable yeah. and I yeah. think we should expect that. But then in terms of whether that means that we should be more forgiving of studies that were done before uh, mm. we had all these ideas, there I don't know whether we should. I think that um, if I tried to do a replication study, a replication of a study from 1985 and that study failed to replicate, and the reason that it failed to replicate is because some critical details about mm. the context of mm. that original study or the mm. design of the study didn't make it into uh, the published version of that paper. Right. I still think that it's important to do that, to show yep. that the study as written, as described, does not replicate. Right. And then mm. if somebody is interested in that finding, they can now come back and do a study that describes it more fully, more yep. carefully, it specifies those contextual factors that really matter, mm -hmm. and then we can move on from there. And yep. then if they 
they don't do that, then we should be doubtful about the the validity of that finding. Right, because a scientific study is not just its result, right? Mm -hmm. It includes right. mm -hmm. the yeah. entire procedure, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. we need to have this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, uh, so I wonder what you guys think about how the sort of reform movement has changed over the years. So mm -hmm. like in 2010, mm -hmm. it was sort of building maybe a little bit. Then 2011, we saw uh, the, the BEM Mm. seeing into the future mm. study, get into mm. JPSP, mm -hmm. and mm. then Yuri Simonson mm. and mm. Nelson and Simmons wrote this paper of false positive psychology. Mm -hmm. And then it, it seemed like everybody sort of got up and said, okay, now it's time to flip over the table, <laughs> Yeah, right? Yeah. And, and we started, you know, really going at it really hard. But do you see that uh, any changes in how we've gone about it? It seems maybe we're trying to get more... I don't know, more people on board, right. might be more inclusive, mm -hmm. or... It, uh, it's, yeah, I think it's, mm, I mean, a critic could say it was pretty negative and destructive in the beginning, but I think that same critic would now have to acknowledge that we're being far more constructive. Mm -hmm. I mean, constructive solutions are being proposed for mm -hmm. uh, r reproducibility issues, mm -hmm. by, uh, uh, largely by members from this, uh, mm -hmm. this community. Right. Yeah. And I think that in some ways it was a necessary step. So I think that yeah. there were people who were concerned about the yeah. methods that were being used and the results that yeah. were, you know, and, and even if we couldn't articulate why certain things were too good to be true, we right. couldn't really, we didn't recognize the unlikely, uh, the, the mm. how unlikely really large effects were and p-values yeah. close to 0.05 or, and we couldn't yeah. articulate all these things at the time. Right. And so what happened is that there were these high-profile failures mm -hmm. to replicate or, or, or high-profile demonstrations of the effects of p-hacking and mm -hmm. how, f how easy it is to get a significant value that were really important at grabbing people's attention yep. and yep. pointing out the extent to which there was a problem. And I don't know. I mean, and so I think that, you know, I think that people who see different sides of this will see a different, perhaps mm. see a different trajectory over time. So we're all sitting here at SIPs where mm. I don't think that there's a, a, a criticism uh, out there of existing research. No. Almost mm. everything that is going on today, yesterday, uh, we're all focused on um, moving the field forward, right, developing right. Forward new looking. techniques for, for dealing yep. with situations. And it's all very um, positive and, yep. and focused on uh, promoting good science rather than detecting and, and uh, criticizing bad science. So where we are sitting, I think it's extremely positive. Um, but, you know, I know that people also still look at uh, social media and see concerns about uh, how things are being talked about on social media. Um, right. You know, and, and I think it's worth paying attention, watching those sorts of things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Rolf, do you think maybe we're in a bubble? At SIPs? Yes, a little bit, maybe, you know, because uh, we tend to agree on everything. And uh, if maybe somebody we're just patting each other on the back. <laughs> yeah, a little sorry. bit. It's a mutual congratulations <laughs> society. And uh, so we need to be worried about that a little bit because, you know, recently we had a discussion in the social media on, uh, uh, well, I had to. Uh, you know, major researchers in cognitive psychology uh, uh, writing a guest blog post, and uh, they were arguing against this new pa paper that says, uh, you know, you should adopt P is smaller than 0.005. Oh, right. and, and, uh, and then Rich got involved in that discussion. Um, so uh, what that made clear is that even in cognitive psychology, where supposedly, you know, there's less of a reproducibility problem or... Well, actually, there is, but there still is mm -hmm. a large problem that uh, it's not widely uh, 
acknowledged. Mm. And uh, so we all think that everybody agrees with us. But, uh, but that's just because we talk to people yes, within like this reproducibility yeah. group, right? That's right. That's I mean, right. are there yeah. still, like, mm-hmm. in your department, what's sort of the proportion of professors who sort of even yeah. know that this is a thing? I'm sure you're very vocal right. about it. I, I am, and I have. In my cognitive area, we have uh, seven people and... Uh, Five of them are involved in replication research and oh so on. Wow. And then there are people in the uh, psych group and in methods. But I think the total number is maybe 10 out of, uh, let's say, 50, 60 faculty. Wow. And uh, those are you know, concentrated in some areas. I know that the, the colleagues in other areas are aware of the discussion because, of course, we talk uh, to them. But they, they tend to be focused very much on, uh, you know, don't let get anything in the way of my uh, output. You know, ah, yes. they're still very much on that track, and uh, so I'd say that people are aware, but they basically think not in my backyard or something like okay. that. Yeah, it's not a problem for me. Uh, How do you think we can reach more people? I mean, it's sort of hard, mm. right? Because social media has made it so that we can mm. reach, you know, on Twitter, anybody who wants to follow you is mm. going to see what mm-hmm. you have to say, yeah. but. Only the, but that's sort of the on the other side of the coin. Yeah. Only the people who follow <laughs> you yeah. see what you yeah. have mm-hmm. to say. That's right. Right. I yeah. mean, how can we? Because I mean, we can do this maybe at, at bigger conferences where mm-hmm. sort of everybody gets together. Mm-hmm. But even still, not everybody goes to these no. conferences, no. right? Even the big ones. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you have any ideas on how we can really reach more people? Yeah. I mean, I think that there are people are taking lots of different approaches to doing that, and I think that. Part of it is just seeing it as outreach. And so, you know, when you can talk to your colleagues about that, yeah. doing that, I think that at SIPS, I think people are really trying to think about ways to do this. You know, I also think that there are some efforts that are just targeted. So if you target funders and if mm-hmm. you target um, editors who are right. going to uh, create policies that then require uh, the people who are looking for funding and looking to submit in those journals, um, th- you know, th- then if, if they require these policies, then the people who are doing that will have to to learn more about it and do it that way. Right. And that re- that requires us to be good at communicating the, val- the 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 reasons why we would want mm-hmm. these sort of policies. Yeah. And you know, and if we can convince editors and convince funders, then things trickle down, and we don't actually have to yeah. reach out and talk to everybody about it. Right. Um, but yeah. again, it, it means that we have to have good arguments and we have to uh, be good communicators in that way. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So. Uh, at the journals that you guys are editors for, Rich, mm. where are you editing? Uh, Journal of Research and Personality. Emerald? Collabra. Collabra, right. Yeah. So how do you guys uh, enforce these new ideas or encourage them? I mean, as I'm, I'm sure you don't have complete control over what you can require, but mm-hmm. I mean, can you? do you have power to push this in the way that you want to? Or uh? I think uh, I would have that power, but it's not necessary because the whole journal is basically you know, designed with open science in mind. So we have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, open data, uh, the option for open review, uh, with the option for registered reports. And uh, so I think we're doing all the things already that SIPS wants us to do. And that's mm-hmm. also why the journal is now affiliated with uh, SIPS. Right, we just uh, heard about that at yeah. the meeting yesterday, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. And then at uh, JRP, my journal, uh, it is actually one that I have a remarkable amount of control. It's unusual. And so I think that 
Uh, my experience at this journal has been different than I think a lot of editors would have at a mm -hmm. uh, typical journal because usually there is an editorial bo a publications board or something like that that mm -hmm. oversees these types of decisions. Um, we had a lot of freedom. There isn't really any sort of publication committee overseeing us. It's really the publisher looks and checks to see whether we're doing policies that fit. And our publisher was always on board with us doing these things. Mm -hmm. So we actually did have an editorial that came out a couple months ago that instituted our new uh, guidelines, uh, new policies to go along with the top guidelines. And so we were mm -hmm. able to uh, institute new, we have a registered report format and we have results blind reviews of replication studies, strong encouragement of replication studies, mm -hmm. uh, open data by default, open materials mm -hmm. by default. And so mm -hmm. we've been able to actually push pretty high up in the, um, the levels of the top guidelines to try to encourage these sorts of things. But my situation is really, really unusual. Most mm -hmm. people don't have the freedom that I do to uh, uh, implement those policies. Right, right. So when you see a paper submitted to you, uh, after you've been to a couple of SIPS meetings, after you've been in this discussion for really for quite a while, both of you, um, when you see a paper, which things are really red flags to you that make you go, you know, uh, no, really you've got to, before we even consider this, you've got to fix this up. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's not fixable. Mm -hmm. But uh, any... Red big red flags. Well, we <laughs> we have uh, research meetings with uh, the graduate students and a couple of faculty and uh, uh, s some under undergraduates, and and people can uh, propose articles. And so, usually, you know, the whole dis there's a whole discussion about the theory and so on. And I'm sort of the pain in the ass that then will say, but look, the p-values mm -hmm. are all uh, you know close to 0.05. Uh -huh. We can't trust these data. Mm -hmm. So I'm basically ruining the discussion. <laughs> but I, I I know that my eye is drawn s straight. You know, when right. there's new paper to the the p-values, right. and right. Uh, so high p-values are red flags. Small. Mm -hmm. Uh, very small samples in cognitive. That's typically not much of an issue because of the you know the the within subjects designs that mm -hmm. we have. So right. even twenty four subjects mm -hmm. can be enough for some experiments mm -hmm. uh, or even ten, I mm -hmm. guess. Uh, but yeah, so mostly that. Yeah, and I think it's very similar for yeah. us. And I think yeah. the I mean the things that I scan first when I get a paper in. You know, I I look at the abstract to get a mm -hmm. sense of what the paper is about. Mm -hmm. I then jump to the methods section and look mm -hmm. at the sample size and then yep. start looking at the manipulation that they use, if it's a manipulation yeah. or, or what the variables are. And then I jump to the effect size and p-values. Mm -hmm. and, and it is always that, that combination of very small sample sizes, very large effect sizes, and yep. p-values close to point of I are yep. the ones that initially will draw my attention. Mm -hmm. Then I go back to check for things like pre-registration, in which case then that might compensate for yep. some of these sorts of things. Yep. Or you know, um, you know, we require people to have a pretty detailed discussion of their sample size decisions, and uh, most don't have. I mean, a lot of papers that come in that I find to be not up to mm -hmm. um, our standards don't have a very good discussion of it. Um, but sometimes, you know, with a small sample size and a good justification, then that might uh, right. change my initial impression mm -hmm. about the uh, about the. Right. Um, sometimes you can only get you know twenty schizophrenic patients or mm -hmm. something yeah. like this. Yeah, and those are tougher calls because yeah. that might not be enough uh, for what you need to do. And right. that's a, then that's an issue we have to deal with. But as far as it may be the case that uh, for a particular effect, I didn't know that there's a long history of very large effects for this type of association. Okay. And so then mm -hmm. I might have had the intuition that this effect size was way, b way too big, mm -hmm. uh, but they could show me a set of studies that actually, sh you know, and we have to be careful mm -hmm. because the set of studies that they're pointing to might be ones that have suffer from publication bias. Right, and so over they have effect sizes that are way yeah. too yeah. big. <laughs> I yeah. think that you know, and I think that we have to take that on a case by case basis. But I think it, you know, asking them to make that justification and then mm -hmm. being an informed reviewer who uh, evaluates the quality of the argument they're mm -hmm. making about 
their sample size justifications is one that I think we as a field can handle yep. um, and, right. and make those judgments. Right. So in your own work, do you incorporate many of these developments? I mean, some yeah. people, y you can imagine that they would be very big on pre-registration and the mm -hmm. benefits of pre-registration, and yet they don't do studies where they do confirmatory mm -hmm. work mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, th it hasn't come up in their lab mm -hmm. or they haven't had a chance to implement it, and yet they still are very vocal yeah. about it. And so mm -hmm. maybe some people say, well, you're not doing it, yeah. right? I mean, do, do you guys incorporate these in your, your studies? Yeah, yeah, we uh, pre-register pretty much every study on the open science framework. I say pretty much because sometimes, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, uh, third author mm -hmm. on something. Oh. And uh, mm -hmm. But the ones that I initiate and that I do with uh, students, student projects and so on, are all pre-registered. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it takes a while to, to get things right. And there's still mm -hmm. uh, unpleasant surprises at times, you mm -hmm. know, where you, you define an, uh, uh, an outlier removal constraint beforehand and then you run the study and turns out you have to eliminate 50% of your subjects, <laughs> you know, because their accuracy level is too uh. low. Um, and then when you submit the manuscript, the editor is going to think there's something fishy. Yeah. You know, because and uh, so it's more important to do pilot work if, you know, if you, ha if you have to have cutoffs for something that you know what's a reasonable cutoff and right. otherwise you might just cut out yeah. half the data. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I I'd say that we do it pretty much all the time and my students find it uh, somewhat challenging but uh, in the end they, they realize that it's a, a better way to do science. Yeah. 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 And in our, in our research, I mean a lot of what we do is exploratory yeah. research. A lot of it, is, uh, the big challenge that we have is a lot of time we're using existing data. So right. I you know, have these very large nationally representative panel studies that I r analyze a lot and we might have new questions with these panel data. They have a new wave of data or you know, we, there's a new variable in there that we didn't know about. So you've that seen we this analyze. data a lot. Yes, so we've worked with these data for years and years and years, even if we haven't addressed this particular question. And so it becomes a really difficult issue in terms of, of uh, how do we do a pre-registration or something like a pre-registration yep. in, that, in that situation. Because on the one hand, I want something, uh, if people who do that type of research, I want to motivate them to uh, constrain their degrees of freedom as much mm -hmm. as possible. Mm -hmm. I want them ahead of time to say, this is what I'm going to do and I'm not going to tweak this once I know how it's affecting these results. Right. At the, on the other hand, we do know something about the data, so it isn't a pure pre-registration. It's right. not a pure, uh, purely pre-data uh, analysis type of thing. And so, um, and actually that's one session here at SIPS that I'm planning mm -hmm. on going to <laughs> later oh. this afternoon oh, is, cool. is how you deal with some of these issues when you're working with existing data that you've had some exposure to. In I the past. see. So it's yeah. like we need to maybe think about this as a continuum mm -hmm. of yep. pre-registration yeah. or yeah. confirmability yeah. or, yeah. or something like this. And I think like it's this. great that I think we have to think about these exceptions yeah. and I think we have to think about the way that the context of the research changes yep. some of the way that we, these yep. policies are enforced. and. Um, and I think that, you know, for <laughs> everybody that's down, you know, at, at SIPS right now, they have a unique situation where the mm. rules can't apply purely and then we can take those experiences and adapt these and try to figure out how can we accomplish the goals of, you know, making sure that we don't change our, research, our, our analytic strategy based on the mm. results in a way that actually fits with uh, various, uh, a variety of research. Right. Uh, yeah, I think Brian Nosek was saying we should really try to get, you know, for the most of the cases, it'll be fine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we just sort of go forward yeah. with it, and then when some cases come up that we didn't expect, then we sort of deal with yeah. them, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, um, So we don't want to be too rigid. That's basically 
the main point, right? So right. Uh, right. So um, I want to ask you guys, sort of changing tack a little bit, mm-hmm. um, this podcast has a theme of sort of Bayesian ideas, mm-hmm. Bayesian statistics, but it's also about topics you would find at SIPs, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. reproducibility ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the things that have come up are uh, about, you know, statistics education or, um, you know, uh, incentives around this and, and things like that. And I want to know, what was it like for you guys when you were being trained mm. in your statistics courses? I mean, did any of these issues come up or... Uh, no, you're shaking <laughs> no. your heads. No. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. No, I mean, my, yeah, I mean, it was a very cookie cutter type of approach. We had our textbook. Yeah. We worked our way through the textbook. It was definitely presented as, as this is a recipe for doing this yeah. type of analysis. Okay. Um, as far as I remember, and maybe I was too focused on just making sure I could actually complete the homework assignments or whatever <laughs> it was, um, but it didn't seem like a lot of um, the underlying, um, you know, more philosophical types of ideas about what we were actually doing when we were doing these statistics. Yeah, to me it seemed like, you know, it was math. And of mm-hmm. course it could only be this way. How could it ever be mm-hmm. any There was way? one answer. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, right. yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas it's now we realize, no, there are. <laughs> right. There's definitely not just one answer <laughs> right. to this. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that's sometimes why, you know, I wonder about the, the you know, the Bayesian frequent dis- discussions mm-hmm. in the social media. Um, uh, you know how what effect they have on the perception of this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, people could say, well, you know, even the experts don't agree. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> you know, who cares? I'm just gonna yeah. do it the way I already did it. Right. Because yeah. uh, uh, I think yeah, that's a real yeah. risk. That yeah. is a real risk. I think there's yeah. also a mm. potential though for people to see like the mm. um, discussions we've been having around this new point oh oh five paper, right? Mm-hmm. And see it as like, oh, even these people I really respect can disagree on these topics. So maybe mm. I don't need to worry about uh, mm-hmm. questioning things that I'm told, right? Mm-hmm. Or or yeah. questioning my advisor or mm-hmm. uh, my professor when they yeah. say something and I go, yeah, but I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. that's not how it works, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but do you guys teach any research methods courses yourselves or? No, 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 not no. right now. No. Yeah, I mean, I'm p- soon. I'll be teaching a course on these issues on reproducibility yeah. Oh, yeah. I, and that I, yeah. sort of thing. Um, it, but I haven't actually in, in a while. Yeah, I have right. a course that's partly. Uh, uh, it's called f- Fundamentals of uh, Cognitive Brain Research, and so part of it is uh, you know theory, and part of it is uh, the, the whole re- reproducibility debate. Mm-hmm. And so, one to try to get students early on, uh, you know. Uh, uh, be aware of this uh, this issue, right? And uh, then there are other courses that build on that. So, mm-hmm. will you yeah. include any material about Bayesian statistics? Mm-hmm. Were you yeah. ever taught any of this in your education? Bayesian? No, 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 probably no, not. No, right? Not no, no, yeah. no. It's no. sort of a new wave sort of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, do yeah. you see any? Do you ever use it yourself yes. in your research? Yeah. You yeah. use it, Rolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean, uh, at a, a very basic level, yeah. uh, okay. you know, where we. Well, basically, I once wrote a blog post about, you know, not wanting to be arrested by the Bayesian uh, <laughs> cops, you know. <laughs> so you want to do I these things. I remember thing that, yeah. yeah. Because, uh, you know, I early on we were exposed to uh, EJ because one of my co-authors wa- is friends with him. Right, and, and so you're in the Netherlands, not yeah. that far from R- him. Right, right. And so uh, he, uh, you know, uh, encouraged us to also use base factors. Uh, so we're doing that now, but along, you know, with uh, the p-values mm-hmm. because... Uh, you know, some journals will uh, still have problems, or reviewers right. will have problems right. if you only use b- base factors. And I'm not in the position where I could convincingly argue right. why I should only use base factors. But also, there's some yeah. sense in which maybe it's beneficial for people to see both of these yeah. next yeah. to each other, yeah. right? right? I right. mean, Zoltan Dines has a, a 
a phrase a a b for every p mm-hmm. <laughs> where you know it's like yeah. eventually people are going to gain intuition about yeah. this but only if they can compare the right. answers yeah. they're getting right and that's right that's right and that's and sorry go yeah. ahead i mean yeah and that's where i've used it i mean so i just gave a talk a couple months ago where we took our nine study replication uh paper mm-hmm. and and what we did is we went through and we kind of presented all the different ways to evaluate this i mean kind of basically taking the cookbook of our chapter or our paper (laughs) that we wrote um, and thinking about what are the different ways that we Mm. could uh, evaluate this. And so we did uh, equivalence testing and Mm. we did a Bayesian approach to evaluating Mm. uh, the success of the replication. We Mm. just looked at p-values, looked at confidence intervals. And in some ways having nine studies and all the, you know, we have this Mm. matrix of uh, (laughs) different criteria and different Mm. studies. And you do get a much better sense about what this really means and how much should we trust this one study versus Mm -hmm. the whole package of studies. how much uh, how much agreement is there among these different ways of evaluating this replication result? And I yeah. thought it was a really useful activity, and I might try to write that up somewhere as well. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, one of the things we just sort of brought up was blogging. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have blogs. Mm-hmm. Um, Rolf, you've had a blog for a, a long time, five, year, five, five or year. so years. Yeah, yeah. Rich, you just made your mm-hmm. blog. Yep. I started mine uh, 2014 or something uh-huh. like this. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you find is the biggest benefit you've gotten from blogging? I mean, at some at some sense, you sort of have to have a big enough ego to think, you know, people are going to care what mm-hmm. I go on a rant about. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it seems like they can they can potentially affect change. Or, yeah. Uh, have yeah. You I experienced think s- this. Yeah. Yeah. I have. Um, and and also uh, what I've uh, when I started out blogging. I wrote mostly about social psychology, which is not my area. Mm-hmm. So one of the outcomes was that people started viewing me as a social <laughs> psychologist. Oh. And, <laughs> and then I thought, well, maybe I should write more about cognitive <laughs> topics <laughs> as well. But, but one of the things it did is that it uh, you know, brings you into contact with, uh, with other people that you wouldn't have ordinarily uh, uh, met or, or had uh, you know, gotten emails from and sometimes it leads to to projects uh, with these people right. and I mean if I hadn't uh, blogged I, I, I may not have been at SIPS for example and mm-hmm. I wouldn't have met you guys right uh, and ha- do you yeah. get any flack from your blogging because you, you, uh, well you can uh, be kind of uh, provocative oh, yes <laughs> well in the beginning I, I think now I'm, I'm extremely moderate and I even post guest bo- blog posts that I don't necessarily agree with uh-huh. uh, um, but yeah, I had a few in the beginning that were a little bit uh, uh, maybe harsh um, and was d- were definitely viewed uh, like mm-hmm. that by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I stopped doing that not so much uh, because of that, but more because I, I thought it's too easy. Mm-hmm. It's too easy to tear down mm-hmm. uh, papers and, right. uh, uh, and I didn't enjoy it anymore. I didn't think it was constructive. So um, I mm-hmm. changed my style a little bit yeah. Uh, yeah. and I tended to blog very often in the beginning, but then I noticed it went a little bit at the expense of my mm-hmm. regular I output. I noticed that with <laughs> mine as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And I thought, well, so what am I, a blogger or a researcher? Right. Yeah. And I'm not a blogger who does research, but a researcher who blogs right. occasionally. Right. Yeah. right. What's your goal when yeah. you blog, Rich? Yeah, it's mm. interesting. I think b- a big mm. part of it is uh, kind of seeing, yeah, like it makes mm. connections. People yeah. see what you're writing yeah. and they see it in this different medium. And, and I think that it, that can be really useful. I mean, I, and for me, I think it's, um, I mean, it's interesting to think about this ego idea that you have this big enough ego that you can write this, you think other people are going to hear what you want to say. But I mean, 
as academics, we do this all the time with the papers that we publish. So yeah, we can right. kind of think about this as, as, you know, just another way of doing it that serves different functions. And yep. actually, I'm kind yep. of interested in the types of things that I could do uh, on a blog versus uh, in a paper. And so one of mm -hmm. the things that I want to do is, you know, almost like a post, instead of a post-publication peer review, it's post-publication self-review where I can take, yep. you know, these papers I've published and say, okay, well, let's pull off little pieces and investigate them a little bit more. So what mm -hmm. I want to do is maybe write a blog post about the way that I reevaluated some of the replicate studies even oh. though we've already published that paper oh, right. and we didn't think right. to do some of these things oh, now yeah. I can extend it in this way that nobody you know, accuses me of double dipping I can talk about it in a little bit more of an informal way it'll yeah. still get out there and it's you know it's, it's just kind of seeing what sorts of uh, different ways you can get ideas out there and how they have an effect and yeah. and one of the things I'm just curious about is like what uh, what difference does it how does it affect people differently when I do it as a blog versus as a paper and because mm -hmm. um, right. I am personally influenced by a lot of blogs that I read mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I like seeing how these things can fun have different functions and, and uh, right. accomplish different goals. So I wonder yeah. what you guys think about uh, starting a blog at this point, right? Because, mm -hmm. Rich, you just really started yeah. one, but yeah. you already sort of have a pretty big platform of mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. know who you are. People kind of want to know what you have to say. But maybe like a, a, a new student or mm -hmm. something like this, they mm -hmm. start a blog and nobody they don't know anybody yet yeah. and yeah. maybe on twitter they get some people reading mm -hmm. it but do you think the the age of blogging is is still in its peak or has, has it gone down or or is it still uh, going up i mean i think uh it might be uh the high point we may have been uh uh you know two or three years ago mm -hmm. i think yeah uh, mm -hmm. but it's now probably not going down not a way, steep decline no, yeah but a little bit and now we have podcasts and things yeah. like that <laughs> right to yeah compete with our blog posts yeah yeah i mean when i, I think the very yeah. first blog post i did yeah. i said that it felt like i was you know basically creating a myspace page because it did feel <laughs> a little bit like an acronym, a, a little bit too late uh, to kind of really hit the prime but um but i think that that's fine again i think that there are you, you have to decide anyone who's going to do it has to decide what they want to mm. get out of it and there are certainly yeah. some people who are going to notice it and then will recognize mm. you and want to talk to you about some of the points that you made recognize you as someone who is kind of engaging in this different way with the issues um, and also it might just be beneficial to you so one yeah. of the things that I'm doing is I'm writing my blog in R Markdown and it forces me to learn some new R Markdown <laughs> oh, skills hey, and, cool. um, you know and so I think that it actually just in terms of just the technical challenges in doing this is something that I'm learning from it even if nobody ever read it I would, mm. I would gain something from it right. and there are other things that other ways you can benefit from that yeah. Um, you know, you, I you know I might write a post and then never actually post it, and that but there was something useful about actually kind of getting those thoughts down in a way that yeah. could be presented to other people. Yeah. And I think that that can be useful. At well, a certain I, point, it's almost like a journal yeah. that yeah. you're writing yeah. in, yeah. and you're like, even if you no one sees it, you're mm -hmm. like, <laughs> someone says something you think is really stupid, and you're like, right, 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 right. right. <laughs> then you right. get to the end of the post, and you're like. Ah, I yeah. don't think I could post this, <laughs> yeah. right. but I still wrote yeah. it. I still yeah. got it out of my system. Yeah. And well, what, yeah. what I like about it too is it's a more informal way of writing. Mm -hmm. So even though in my on my blog, I've I guess uh, I, I guess experience uh, experimented with different styles, mm -hmm. and uh, I like to write, you know, kind of uh, in a humoristic way. But it's not always effective, mm -hmm. of course. So I right. tended to uh, to do much less of that now, mm -hmm. even though I enjoy it very much. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I think it. it it allows you to express your ideas about uh, different aspects of the field in a slightly different manner. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, to th 
to write about things that you wouldn't ordinarily write about, you know. My experiments ab are about language, not about, uh, you know, uh, Bayesian statistics mm -hmm. or whatever. Right. But I can blog about it. And what I like about it too is the immediacy. Mm -hmm. You write something yeah. and then, boom, you accept your own blog post. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's <laughs> now it's out. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, th th there's something to be said for it still to be like, you know, yeah. if you write a paper and you yeah. submit it and then three months go by, yeah. you get your first feedback, then you work for another month to review, yeah. then you submit it again and maybe yeah. you go through another yeah. round of review. Yeah. I mean, it can be eight, nine, ten months. Right. Uh, you yeah. know, that can be short for some papers, yeah. right? I mean and, and a blog, you get out, you know, boom. Yeah. And I also think it attracts different type of feedback, too. So yeah. one of yeah. the things I've noticed is that, you know, I've gotten many at conferences, more people have come up to me and said, oh, I read your blog. Yeah. Than they've ever <laughs> yeah. come up to me and said, oh, I read your paper. <laughs> <Yeah>. And it's <laughs> right. the same yeah. thing. And, and yeah. I don't know whether it's just because mm. they're short, so lots mm. more people can. Mm. I think it is mm. the case that more people will read these blogs yeah. than will read any of your papers. Yeah. Um, and so, but uh, there's also the informality of it, I think, encourages people to yep. to communicate with you and reach out to talk to you about them in a way that is rewarding, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think that it's, um, again, it's that idea that it is just a different medium for presenting ideas and that it has different strengths and weaknesses, pulls for different types mm. of reactions. Right. Mm -hmm. And some of those are um, really nice and, uh, and something that you would never get from just kind of relying on, on journal articles. Right. right. Yeah, it is sort of funny. You go to a conference and someone says, I really love your blog. And <laughs> yeah. you, every time I go, thank you. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. it feels like I'm writing this for myself. Yeah, but yeah, then, yeah. Uh, it, then yeah. they say, oh, you know, maybe you can actually affect people's views on things, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like I've written Bayesian posts mm -hmm. and... Uh, People will say, "Oh, we we actually mm -hmm. assign this in a seminar." Mm -hmm. yeah. Like when I started, I mm -hmm. never thought mm -hmm. I would have anything mm -hmm. like that. Right, right. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, but but it seems like so you, you guys sort of still think there's value to maybe starting a new blog. Yeah, if you have something, so. yeah. you know, I, you still have to have sort of a niche. Right? Yeah, 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 you yeah. do. You, you can't do. just write the same thing everybody mm -hmm. else writes. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. No, no, and so it could be, you know. Uh, for example, you could start out writing about papers you find interesting or problematic. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if that's something you 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 want to sustain, and also you're now competing with, you know, societies that have that. For example, the Psychonomic Society now has its right. own uh, blog, so people write about papers that are interesting. Um, uh, I think you know that's maybe a good way to start, but then you should uh, develop it into something that's a little bit more uh, unique. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you should right. have your own niche. Mm -hmm. Right. I want to ask maybe one more question before mm -hmm. we end. Mm -hmm. um, if you could change immediately one thing, you could exact any change that you want uh, to the field in order to try to help with this reproducibility crisis, w what would you do if you could do one thing or m maybe two things? <laughs> right? One thing's hard. Uh, That's a good question. I would maybe say uh, change the incentive system. Uh-huh. Uh, to where uh, you just have to, of course, uh, enforce it. And no department uh, is allowed to make decisions based on the number of publications. Uh, people should be able to be evaluated on, uh, well, depending on their, you know, level, uh, their best three, three best or five best papers. And I think uh, so. So that there's no reward for publishing fast and uh, many papers. Mm -hmm. uh, I think. That is at the root of uh, all of our problems, this incentive system. 
Yeah, I think that as far as a fundamental change, yeah. I think yeah. that it has to be the incentive mm -hmm. system. But I'm I'm trying to think about if I, you know, if there was one little more concrete thing that mm -hmm. I could focus on, what would that be? And that one's, I think, a little bit harder yeah. to, to pin yeah. down because I think a lot of these things are interrelated. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, sample sizes, I think, are a huge problem. The, the small, yeah. at least within social psychology, mm -hmm. I think that the yeah. very, very small sample sizes mean that it's very unlikely to find an effect, which means that you then uh, might be more tempted to do some of the, um, the questionable around. research yeah. practices that are problematic. And so I, I, I do feel like if, if that was a little bit more... Um, that would have some really some some immediate uh, practical benefits. Um, they certainly wouldn't solve anything because you can still p-hack a large mm -hmm. study to uh, mm -hmm. to 0.05, and so we would then want to think more about the standards of, of um, uh, you know of how we evaluate these sorts of things. We would want to think more about um, you know if that combined with pre-registration, mm -hmm. so we know what's in the file drawer. Mm -hmm. That combined with open data, so we can see how robust these results right. are to alternative specifications. But you know, kind of, if we trying to pin, pick one uh, concrete thing, I, I would, I think, for at least some fields, I think larger sample sizes. Would larger be sample helpful. sizes. Yeah. But again, I think it all really boils down to the incentive structure. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, yeah. thanks for joining us on this podcast, guys. It was really, really thanks. fun. I'm glad you did it. Yeah. Thanks oh, for having us. My pleasure. <laughs> you can find this podcast and all the background information mentioned in it on the Tufts High Lab website at sites.tufts edu slash hilab slash podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the base factor. We want to thank Sol Albert and Laura de Ruiter for their technical support, Sotaro Kita from Warwick University for generously letting us use his lab for several interviews, the Cognition and Individual Differences Lab at UC Irvine for their financial support, and Theo Fosse for creating the music for this podcast. <laughs>